Welcome to the Think It Isn't Until It Is podcast. I'm Finn. I'm Tim. I'm Guy. Chapter two is entitled, Just Write Another Ten of Those and We're Good. Covering winter 2004 to summer 2006, the hazy days in which we record biscuits for breakfast, play live for the first time, realise things are going quite well, release the album, do some tours and festivals, and lose stroke win at tennis. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, at the end of the last podcast, we were grouping at Scream in Croydon in 2004, and feeling each other out, <laughs> musically speaking. <laughs> yeah. So then what happened? Then what happened? Well, I, I, there's something I want to know, which you touch upon in the book. During the early period, like us um, rehearsing at Scream and recording Pills in My Pocket and so on, to what extent were your lords and masters at Ninja Tune aware that this was all happening? Because you kind of allude to certain elements of kind of subterfuge, like you're not quite telling them that there's a band. And then there's also the bit that where you're not quite telling them that you're the vocalist, even. That's all very true. Um, I just wanted to get honest feedback, you know, me singing and me playing guitar or me being a singer songwriter. As you said in chapter one, um, when Guy said, oh, my mate Finn, you remember him? He's that douchebag with the trendy haircut you met at that gig that time. Um, he's, he's a singer songwriter now. And you were kind of incredulous about it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> to be honest, I think Ninja would have been exactly the same. So I didn't tell the guys at Ninja Tune that I was singing. And I'd already delivered a few bits and pieces from singers that I was working with because I kind of thought my set, my follow-up album to my trip-hop days would be like a hybrid of songs with guest singers and instrumentals, kind of like a Zero Seven album or a Groove Armada record or something like that. Which, which it, it, luckily, it didn't turn out that way because Skev and Summit uh, management both said, you've got to be one or the other and you can't be the other. So sing all, all the songs. But at this point, I had guest vocals from a young Amy Winehouse. I had guest vocals from Tina Grace. I, had, um, I was working with a few vocalists over my beats. And so, yeah, I was recording demos as a vocalist too for them. But when I played them to Ninja Tune, I definitely didn't want them to know it was me uh, because then I wouldn't get like, you know, a true feedback of like, this is dreadful. We don't want to release this. If they'd have said that, I would have been like, okay, good. I'm glad I didn't say it was me because they would have said, yeah, it's good. But I mean, it's, it's kind of, yeah, I kind of get it. But, you know, I wanted them to be brutal and ruthless. Mm, mm. So I told them it wasn't me. I, I told them it was a, a, a trendy, hot American guy that I'd found. And the guitarist was some trendy, cool American dude that I'd found. And it was only when they, was, they were listening to demos and going, okay, so we need to do a showcase. We need to, you know, do a gig, maybe get some, get some radio support. You know, are, are these guys, how are we going to fly them over? You know, are they available for, for gigs and tours? And it was only then that we had to kind of say, well, yeah, but it's actually all me and I'm free and I'm already <laughs> signed. Um, at which point they were uh, like, yeah, incredulous, like like your good self, Mr. T, but also kind of, I guess, a little bit happy because everybody wanted a Jose Gonzalez at this point because he was signed to a dance label, Peace Frog, and and he'd just made, you know, a ton of cash with a bunch of sinks and TV ads and, and inspired a whole generation of singer-songwriters, me included, you know. Um, 
And I think Ninja were like, oh, thank God for that. We don't actually have to go and find one. And, and grapple with the whole, can Ninja Tune release a singer-songwriter? It's a hell of a left-field turn from, you know, three-deck mixing and, you know, DJ Olympics and things like that. And maybe it lacks that, that choice would look a bit commercial. It'd look a bit bandwagony. They were definitely very concerned about that. But if one of your existing artists decides to do that, well, then our hands are tied. I mean, he's already an, he's already an Ninja Tune artist. So, uh, you know, what, what can we do but support his, his vision? If you like it, it was our decision. If you don't, it was a terrible decision by the artist and we, we apologize. So, you know, that was kind of awesome because then we were all in it together. Like Ninja Tune were like, dude, this is bonkers. You doing this? Okay, great. Um, okay, let's, let's do that now. And none of us knew what we were doing. That's why when we did our early gigs, there was no sound guy because not even Ninja or us or anyone thought, oh, you need to bring a sound guy. Because when you're a DJ, you do it yourself. You know, Ninja Tune had experience with their big bands like Cold Cut and people like Herbalizer and stuff, but they didn't think that I was one of those players yet so so yeah the early demos when we were making early demos for ninja and i was delivering them i don't think they were prepared for how live and how real they were but when we would go into my brighton loft and record some stuff and jam i realized real quickly as a producer that this is going to sound like this i can try and dress it up and and do extra stuff but every time i do extra stuff it just doesn't sound real but when it's just Timmy plays his drums and Guy plays his bass and I play my guitar and sing, then it like sounds like a thing. When I try and add stuff and trendy stuff and try and make it sound like something else, it just doesn't work. So uh, the, us three playing together just kind of forced us into this box, this Folktronica box, which was all the rage at the time, if I remember rightly. And sure. we, we were really trying, or I was really trying to make, um, well, like Guy said in the previous chapter, we were kind of doing it backwards. I was making and producing a record, and then we were going to work out how we did it afterwards. So that was our process for a while, wasn't it, basically? Like, you know, track by track. I mean, I think the the arrangements um, ended up dictating what um, came out the other end. So, you know, rather than you thinking, how can I combine this with electronics and make it affect it and all of that, it was actually the kind of very, very raw material, like in your loft playing like that biscuits beat for example yeah I, I think i say in this chapter that that was for me that was one of the first times we really nailed it like that everything we wanted from this it was a nice tight beat with guitar and bass played incredibly tightly yeah but it's essentially drums bass guitar that absolutely you, know, you can't get get away from it but it's so quiet i think that was for me the kind of interesting point was everything we were doing was so quiet like, to the point where we could play in your loft and not you know get yelled at by the neighbors all the time yeah <laughs> well like to be fair i did uh, i i have got an asbo because of right. those sessions but didn't but that come later i don't i don't know the asbo was pretty soon because we were doing you got to choose pretty early and uh, you used to hit those drums pretty hard up there mr z no, let's not talk about the asbo let's, let's, let's just gloss, let's, over, let's that. Just gloss over the asbo but yeah, because when we were when we were working out how we were going to play together, obviously me and Guy, we knew, okay, the bass can be turned down and turned up and played this way and played that way. And we didn't need a, you know, a, a bass rig at that point. We could just plug him right in and have a nice time. And my, acoustic, my nylon guitar was very quiet and very polite. 
But then you then then you bring in you know a drummer, and all of a sudden it's kind of like, well, that's louder than everything else. Everything, how, yeah, sure. How, how how do we do this? And I think you you dealt with that really really well, like just having to constantly turn down all the volume mm. buttons, which was like really went against all of your kind of natural instincts as a guy who's been drumming in lots of bands. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you almost want me to kind of not even hit these drums. I mean, yeah, you know, it felt like that sometimes. A lot of brushes and t there's a lot of T-shirts draped over things and then hoodies and dressing gowns and your Sum 41 commemorative video shoot dressing gown was, you know, drafted into muffle, yeah. muffle instruments that instruments that craftsmen had spent ages making sure didn't sound muffled. Yes, exactly. We're getting muffled big time. But that's uh, what it is. It, it was a, it was deadening things, yeah, wasn't it? Dead everything. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And then it was when I discovered these guys. The brushes. Yeah, the brushes, your, of, the, the brushes of love. Yeah. Pulling up my plastic brushes here. I mean, and that was like very much a, a means to an end, you know, how to kind of keep a kind of in-time um, band without having to whack my hi-hat loudly. Because that's deafening. I mean, anyone's hi-hat is deafening. So, yeah, it was. It, I remember that was, it was all like a question of just getting smaller to the point where I think we kind of, I remember some at some point in 2005 we sort of started going to your loft more than we started going to Scream to just to actually rehearse. Yeah. Yeah because Scream just sounded so bad. Yeah. I just I just couldn't handle the demoralization of 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 rehearsal room sound and you know in in the loft we could control like my voice and your snare reverb and the level of bass and we could really like you know this was the thing you know di uh, biscuits for breakfast wasn't recorded in a fancy studio it was recorded in a loft of of of, of, of an edwardian terrace house and that level of intimacy i think is is absolutely on 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 all the on all the tracks, it's it's almost so polite. You want to kind of shake us and be like, dude, you know, ah, you know, but we were just, you know, our environment being free, mine, and, you know, all that stuff really helped us to spend hours getting, well, minimizing what, what we were doing. So it sounded like it was, it fitted together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because in our rehearsals, it sounded like Finn is an absolutely green, never done this before guy who's a bit nervous, and 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 the rhythm section are, we're we're in a rollicking indie band for <laughs> ten years, and it's like this 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 just this this is incongruous, man. It's just not going to work. But in the studio, we could we could we could play into the play into the nice sounds and the nice vibes, you know, and get these nice grooves. You're totally right, man. And the and the in incongruity was carried into. You know what we were building as a live experience i think because you know we took we took what we knew as our studio sound and it was immediately clear that the three of us playing on stage were not going to be able to recreate that immediate certainly not in the near future um so we we adapted in our live performances a lot of tracks sound quite you know almost, well yeah different we put different emphases and different different you know there's dynamics and we had to learn to put those dynamics in when we play some of our stuff that was more flatline it sounds absolutely great for six minutes on a recording but live we would we would discover early on that some things that's not maybe not going to carry across how you hope and so well we, we experienced the same as everybody does um which was that one one gig teaches you more than those early gigs especially one gig is worth 20 rehearsals so yeah. yeah no doubt and in our case our 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 first gig we should probably skip on to which was the the ICA so did we do this ICA gig before the record came out yes 
So you did that one was, without me. I mean, yeah. Well, we did two ICA gigs, one without Guy, um, and but one the real kind of trio first gig. That was in the autumn of 2005. So right. still, still a good six months off from the record coming out. And that was, you know, as you say in the book, it was a kind of baptism of fire because it, you know, we went from being a band in a scream rehearsal room to um, supporting Cold Cut live on XFM, the ICA main room, all of which are pretty hardcore things uh, absolutely and, and cold cut you know they 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 not only do they own ninja tune but at this point they were easily the biggest artist on ninja tune and um xfm was still a thing back then mm. it was very cool and very credible and nick luscombe i think nick got luscombe, us that yeah, gig um, or, or something or something like that yeah and flow motion it was live on his show oh my god it was live on air i mean it was just so crazy that we did that i don't think you told me that i don't think i've ever heard that we were live on xfm i reckon you guys must have agreed don't tell guy <laughs> we probably did actually come, come, yeah. we, th that was maybe the beginning of, of 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 the let's not tell guy let's, let's not, not give tell guy, guy the details on this one just so that he just concentrates on what he's doing exactly <laughs> that was, I remember nothing from, all I remember is asking Susie Green if we could borrow Colcut's sound guy, Steve Hodge, and uh, how naive is that question now, I totally appreciate that, but, and she just looking at me with this kind of concrete wall of no, and just said, <laughs> no, and we were like, okay, and the gig, the gig I don't remember at all, I remember us surviving it, that's all I remember. I remember a couple of things from it, um, I remember it being... In those days, it was sort of, I don't know why you did this quite, but you used to do this thing where you'd turn to us at the beginning of a song and say, so should we do it mellow, chilled, or or, or like, you know, okay. like we were deciding how to play it there and then. And it was kind, and it was kind of cool in a, in a way because it sort of, it meant that, you know, we were still very live. Like it was the, the beginning of this whole thing of things not being quite set in stone when we play live, you know. But I suppose at that point, it was like, well, we play it, we play it like we play it in the rehearsal room, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I know, I know what Finn means. I, I know what you mean because the, the early Motel Mosaic recording is exactly that. But the thing is, is that w what Finn was alluding to was that exactly what we just said. That or the only other thing we had in our army, all we had on stage was an acoustic bass, four strings on it, no effects pedals, nothing else. All I can do is change how hard I'm hitting it. Finn only had. The nylon string guitar, I think. I think he might have had the, the Martin, but he hardly touched no. it. It was most, yeah. It was just just the just the nylon string, and Mr. T had literally the smallest drum kit in the world. So there wasn't much we could do. So, so what Finn meant by that was, shall we do the pretty little thing up tempo here? Does this crowd need a bit of waking up, or should we? Mm. Or maybe we could do it really, you know, like a daisical, which which I know is not the rules. I know that's not what bands discussed live on stage. <laughs> I know that's that's not the rule, but I know what he was alluding to. It does make sense. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it was maybe just the nerves yeah. of trying to I don't I do kind of remember used that now you mention it I do remember doing that a little bit in the early days but I think maybe that was just me reminding myself okay it's us three yeah this is us yeah. right and, yeah, exactly. and that, that's them over there I don't really want to even acknowledge there is a them at exactly. this point I just want it to just be us so yeah. just, how we just, want. just look yeah. at me and remind me that it's not just me walking into a hail of bullets here yeah and yeah um it's funny you say that because I haven't remembered yeah, that in years. Yeah. But yeah, we used to do that. That's true. It's funny. It's it was there was several things that we used to do like that that carried on. One of them was the whole uh, giving each other a hug at the end of the gig. Oh, that's nice. Because not many bands actually do that, but we 
We've always it's well, we don't do it because well, they hate each other after fifteen years on the road, which is why we all we all have separate separate, separate places buses when we travel. Um, <laughs> but you know, it it was very much like a kind of wow, we got through it. Yeah, that's that's the feeling I remember. And then that was the tradition, you know, like wow, we got through it, and now we got through another one. Yeah, you know. So and I mean, it was it was lovely because we did get through it. I don't know if they clapped or not. They probably did, but um, afterwards, people said all those things that they say after gigs. Oh, it was really good to me. Oh, yeah, it sounded great. Oh, yeah, the front of house sound was amazing, you know. And it doesn't matter if they were lies. It was just really nice just to just to be like, okay, one down. Yeah. That yeah, first sure. time is done. Now it's all it's all uphill from here, but that's all good. At least the first step is taken. Yeah, but you know? but the thing is, is you know when, you, when, especially in the early days, that we sort of skipped over a bit with Fink because we did just go straight into pretty pretty good touring, which maybe is the next conversation. Um, but... Uh, it's when you are playing and all the audience are just your family and friends, you can't take their compliments seriously when they're telling you you sound great, obviously. So, but then um, we went out and and there's there's one show, isn't there, where you just know, you know, you just feel it. It's different. You you know when everyone says that was brilliant, you guys were brilliant. You, 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 you know in your stomach and in your heart, you're like, yeah, yeah, we were. You know it. And in our case, I think that was Brighton. I don't know. For me, it was Motel Mosaic, that gig in Rotterdam. Ah. You know, we were just doing these warm-up gigs at this point. I mean, it, we'll go back to the old Queen's Head in a minute, but we were just doing sort of, we were just getting jammed onto bills as favours and, you know, supporting people as favours. And when we did Motel Mosaic, we were slammed on the bill at the last minute as the last band on the Sunday or something really like... We're just doing you a favor here. Just play your 30 minutes and then bugger off and then we can all go home. And we did our 30 minutes on camera, on TV. And the, 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 and the sound guys and the techie guys and the TV crew and all of those guys said afterwards, oh man, you guys were great. I can't believe I've never heard of you. Who are you? Wow, That's true, that was really cool. Was I good. love this track. I love that track. And I thought they, 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 they don't need to say that at all. And yeah, yeah. That means we must have been all right yeah. to say that. You <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah. It was a real moment for me, that Motel Mosaic show. I think it's something about um, our kind of uh, relationship with the Netherlands in the early days as well, because they tend to judge things on its merit. Whereas in Britain, there's a, a million and one concerns like, is it trendy? Which magazine's talking about it? Which label are they signed to? All of those things. But in, I always felt like in the Netherlands... If you're good, they'll be into it. They'll tell you, you know. So there's a kind of layer of stuff that that is stripped away in a way. That's that's always what I felt from those. Because the first, I think, like gigs two and three ever were in the Netherlands, weren't they? Pa- Paradiso, right? Um, supporting Yonder Boy and the Motel Mosaic gig. Yeah. So and they're really quite early. I mean, maybe maybe three and four, but um, still, that's pretty damn early. I mean, most bands have racked up about ten bar five. Um, performances and uh, you know before before they do that well that was i guess that was part of the deal that i pitched to you guys Very in true, the really yeah. early days of fink which was that ninja tune they they this record will come out everywhere at the same time so we will get released in holland and belgium and spain and portugal and russia and australia you know it will just it will be everywhere it's not just it's in the uk and hopefully we'll get a gig in france it will be there and and I knew that from my DJ days, you know, their, their global network was 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 real. Yes. But let's rewind a little bit and go back to the old Queen's Head gig, which was a, quite an important gig for us. What's that, gig three or gig two? Well, it, in terms of the trio, it's gig two. Gig two. So, yeah. so was that the release gig? 
of the album? It might have been. I, all I know is that Summit, this might be wrong, he, he might correct us, but Summit was like, um, in order to get this, this Zero Seven are looking for a support band that aren't a pain in the ass, are basically free and, you know, won't ask too many questions. So um, we're going to do like an acoustic gig and invite them down. That's exactly what it was. See if they like you enough to, to put you on the tour. And it's a massive deal. And if, if, if you get it, all your dreams come true. And if you don't get it, go back to Brighton and cry into your, into your pillow. And so we, we arranged to play upstairs at the old Queen's Head to do like an unannounced showcase. Maybe it was an album release showcase. It was announced in Metro as such, wasn't it? I think It was announced in Metro and Metro said Ninja Tune, free gig. Yeah. And with those two words, yeah. it was <laughs> absolutely 300 ridiculous. trendies that yeah. were probably expecting Amon Tobin to play some ambient sort of, you know, breakbeat. But it was essentially acoustic, wasn't it? There wasn't I don't even remember there being a PA. But. I think there was something for you to sing through. There was, there was. There was a, there was a, there was a small PA. I, I was definitely not mic'd up. Um, and Guy, if I remember rightly, you were expecting there to be some sort of bass amp there. That's right. And that's when when we got there and we were setting up and you couldn't see a bass amp and Summit, our manager, pointed at some random guitar amp and went, just use that, dude. That's right. <laughs> you, That's like, right. Fair um, enough, man. It's, you know, it's a solution. It's a solution-driven option, and, it, and it's solution an option, you know? option. But yeah, we were very quiet for the room full of people, and also we were very low because it was there was no stage. I mean, we couldn't even. I remember. I remember just it was ter- it was much more terrifying than ICA because a no stage, so no separation, and b we couldn't even get in ourselves. It was so packed that just for us to get up the stairs to get to our playing area was almost kind of like, how are we even going to get into this place? And I do remember we played to a hundred or so people that from memory, they just didn't care. They were just talking. It was just a bar gig. They were talking away and drinking their pints. And I remember seeing Sam and Henry sort of sat over on a couch in like this Royal box position and just thinking, you guys are gonna, you guys are just gonna be like, well, no one's listening, so no. It's funny, isn't it? And, and we did okay. I'm sure we did all right. Yeah. But, um, when we got to, we found out that we got the zero seven support tour when we were at Moto Mosaic, I think. Yeah, right? we Didn't did. We? we were in the hotel, I think, in the Rotterdam hotel. Maybe Summit, you know, with his trade on potential mantra, maybe he sort of had a word and just sort of said, guys, they're gonna be the new, you know. He's the new Neil Young. You should put him on your tour. I don't know how he did it. Yeah. I think there might have been I think there might have been some hard selling going on behind the scenes for us to get that gig, but we got a support tour, which means we're going to play we're going to do a UK tour. We're going to do an academy tour with 07 and when the album came out, it was like a number 1 album. I mean, it was a big record. They were, yeah, they were really big at that point. It, it was a thing. The garden was a thing. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was it was it was that was a learning curve. Yeah. The likes of which few bands actually get to have, wasn't it? Definitely. Really? Just And the other thing about it was that I mean, we've done UK tours where you have Shepherd's Bush Empire or so uh, uh, in London, but then you go to the the towns and it's 500. But 07 were Shepherds Bush Empire size all over the UK. So you had Everywhere. Southampton Guildhall, which was enormous. It was so enormous. Giant. They were playing five-a-side football in the like, in the, the audience area, the crew, when we arrived. I mean, and, and their band was enormous. I mean, they had like a, a amazing, amazing band, but they had like, you know, a seven or eight-piece band. They had Sia as a guest vocalist. Well, she was the vocalist at the time. You had Jose Gonzalez as a guest as a guest musician who, who had recorded a track for them and wasn't Jose Gonzalez at the time, but now he very much was 
Jose Gonzalez. So he'd walk on and the crowd would go nuts. And it was just kind of like, it was such a massive experience. And it was, yeah. I, I learned so much on that tour from, from, the, from Sam and Henry, from the, from the crew that we, I could see who does what. Okay, the monitor guys, that guy, the front of the house is like that. The, the techies are like this. Yeah. The support band are like here in the pecking order, you know? I mean, wow, it was just so amazing. You know, it really was. It was, incredible. it was. And I mean, you know, we really did um, sharpen our show. I mean, I like I, I think I said in the book, there's a sort of before zero seven tour think and a post zero seven tour think. Completely different animals. Yeah, I think. absolutely. You know, we were so much looser after the, after that tour. It was when we did Leeds. For me, it was the gig at Leeds Uni because I went to Leeds. So, well, two things about that Leeds Uni gig that were great because not all the zero seven gigs were good. We did bomb a couple of times pretty hard. Sure, but um, was when was because Guy never went to university. I'm sure he doesn't mind me sharing that. Um, so when we got to Le when we got to one of these university campuses, it was all like a sunny day. There were literally bunnies hopping on the fields as <laughs> students played frisbee and smoked weed in the in public and guy was just kind of like i remember guy's face just being like oh right okay <laughs> I, now i get university this looks great but the leeds university gig was like in a in a proper uni student union type venue it wasn't like shepherd's bush or, or birmingham academy it was like a proper student venue and I just remember we we stepped we we had to, we got a bit raucous. We I think maybe we were exhausted, and we got nothing to lose. Kind of crept in. Yeah. And sorry, I'm late. The ending to sorry, I'm late was getting bigger and bigger and bigger because we just wanted them to shut up and listen for a second. And absolutely. And man, that that Leeds gig, we 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 I came off stage thinking we just did that. We just did that. We just did good there. We did really good there. We're a band now. I love that. And we'd shaved um, songs off the set as well. It was a lean kind of twenty five minutes. As opposed to us trying to cram more songs into a, you know, into the space space of time. Yeah. So we knew what we were doing. You know, we were we were sort of a bit cocky. I yeah. think. Well, cocky, or I don't know about cocky because I definitely wasn't. You know, I definitely didn't feel cocky at that point. But I definitely felt like, okay, we've done like five gigs in this format. We know what we're walking into here. Mm. A quick line check and then a gig in front of a, a thousand talking zero seven fans. We know what this is, so fine. This is what we're doing, and we're going to do it. And I think that Leeds Uni gig was where I came off stage being like, "Okay, we did that. We we got this." And then we um, had our summer of festivals because obviously, if you if you want to get practice going out as a three piece, just bowling onto the stage, plugging in and going, that's that's what you get at festivals. Yeah, and festivals is a total lottery. And by this point, the record was out, so yeah, there was some momentum. We'd we'd had some good press, and you know, we'd had some people saying nice things, and everybody was definitely kind of like Ninja Tune have released a singer songwriter. What kind of that, that was in our favor too? Yeah, I think festivals is how you gain fan base it's a free it's a free gift you know they're all waiting to see foo fighters and you know even if 50 people in every city yeah go oh fink was pretty good you can go back and play a toilet venue and sell 70 tickets and and you've begun building the, the building blocks but those festivals i mean they festivals will never stop being a challenge even now with us where we're not bottom of the bill anymore we're kind of in the middle somewhere you still don't know what you're going to get it could be the best gig of your life. It could be the worst, worst half an hour you've ever played. Even now, you just never know. It's, it's, it's almost like a baptism of fire, which just ne you just never stop being baptized. Yeah, yeah. And you can see the bigger bands trying so hard to kind of um, offset that, like to try and think, okay, 
this could go wrong, that could go wrong. So we'll put this in place, that in place. And they've put so many things in place to try and, what's the word I'm looking for? Is it mitigate? Mitigate those circumstances. I, I, I saw one of those recently as a really quick aside. I saw Mumford & Sons headline Ziggit when we played Ziggit last. Yeah. And they had everything, pyrotechnics, drum kit getting destroyed and everything. And at one point the pyro is just about to be lit. And I saw this guitar tech run onto the stage with a big black cloth and he quickly threw it over Mumford's guitar boat <laughs> because it someone had forgotten to do it. And when the pyro kicks off, all the pyro just lands yeah, on this yeah, guitar yeah. boat. And if he hadn't remembered that, yeah, we're talking 50 grand's worth of guitars up in smoke at that point. But yeah, it's, it, it was festivals are mitigating circumstances. And Guy said something to me in the really early days, which has never left me, which is like the more boxes you put on the stage, the more there is to go wrong. So I think with Fink, especially when we were doing our early festival tours, it was literally like, if you've got more than a tuning pedal on that stage, be prepared for some shenanigans, you know? So you bring your own lead, you bring your own pedal, and you just cross your fingers. Hopefully a string's not going to break. Hopefully it's not going to rain. Yeah. And and yeah, we, we, we cut our teeth not being the headline band. I mean... Sure. It's, in many ways, it's better to not be the headline band on a, on a festival stage, isn't it? Oh, yeah, on a festival for sure. But even on our early support tours... Right, yeah. We're playing to a bunch of people that don't care. They actually, they're actually waiting to see Yonder Boy or Lou Rhodes or whoever, all those other bands we supported. So actually they're, they're, they're probably going to talk all the way through and, you know, don't, don't get upset about it. Just, you know, try and, as my father said to me, play to the people who are listening, not the people who aren't. And it takes a while to get into that mind frame because you're like, why aren't you listening to me? But this is why we were really shy of playing the ballads because we'd go soft and everyone would just wander off. <laughs> <laughs> it was only you know what i mean it was just yeah, the biscuits yeah. tour the biscuits early biscuits tours we were just kind of like every gig was so different and so unique and new and i mean maybe not for you guys but for me it was just like wow you know this is every gig is so unique yeah. it's it's amazing oh, it was new for us too as well it, this because this was a totally different type of music for us as well to to play you know i guess we weren't used to being so loud uh so quiet we were used to being loud yeah yeah and also it, it was different for us as well to be you know as you say third gig was supporting yonder boy in a sold out paradiso we haven't been on stage in a sold out paradiso either of us mm. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many gigs you've done you're not ready for yeah. that that's a different different vibe to us you know a, a mostly full red eye in yeah. king's cross area you know i mean that 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 was the, that was the thing with us i think because none of us had done this before at this point, you know. I had never played live, you'd never, you know, been released on a, on a big indie or whatever, you know, yeah, we'd done that trade-off. But w w when we got to playing big venues and, you know, uh, festivals and big things like that, we were in a position where actually none of us in this trio has, has done this before. We were all of a sudden kind of equal partners in this adventure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know? And uh, the example we gave in the book as to sort of the, the climax of this whole sort of early festival experience was the Lowlands, the first time we played Lowlands. Oh, wow, what, a, what an experience that was. And we definitely, neither, of, all three of us had never done something like that before. That I remember brilliant. this techie, you know, taking me aside and saying, have you ever played Lowlands before? And I said, no. And he said, it's special. You'll understand, you know. People react in a special way here. I remember. I think you say in the book that you didn't even you didn't believe they were being genuine. It was the reaction was so no. amazing that you were like, they, they they must there must be a joke we're not getting here. Tim was really freaked out. Do you remember after the gig? Tim was literally like, was, was, did, I mean, he literally couldn't believe that they were serious. I know, it was <laughs> insane. I mean, I I just I just thought, okay, we're we're playing a good gig, but this is just this is 
beyond. I think it was one of the first times we played a Fink gig. I know it's a festival show, but it's a Fink gig in a closed tent. And they're sat down and they're quiet. Yeah, yeah. So they could hear what we were doing. And it was like it, there was about maybe a thousand people in the tent. It was a little portend of what, what it could be like in the future. People actually listening and actually wanting to hear you was yes. quite a new experience yes, for us, yes. I think. Yeah. So with Lowlands under our belt um, and the album out, there's not, what was left was to, you know, tackle the tricky question of what's next, what's next really. exactly. Yeah. Tricky second album, which I think we'll cover in the next podcast, won't we? Yes, Chapter three. absolutely. I mean, Guy did touch upon the fact that it was, um, we were beginning to be aware that we needed more songs. Yeah, for sure. no doubt. Well, I mean, the whole of Biscuits is about 39 minutes, isn't it? So that was all the songs we had. There you go. So first problem, you got a headline, play for an hour. You know, okay, we're already 20 minutes short. Boom. Yeah. Had you begun yeah. actually writing them at this point, Finn, do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think so. We'd, 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 we'd worked out a few covers, hadn't we? Like, just to, just to fill, the, fill a bit of space. And um, There was City Lights by Husky Rescue, and then there was I Don't Want to Know by John Martin. Yeah, we, we were just kind of, yeah, we, we, we were gently starting to write Distance and Time, or what would become Distance and Time. Only because as a musician, I was playing so much, doing so many gigs, doing so much, so many hangs, and so much promo, that I was starting to grow into the role a little bit of like, I'm a guitarist, I'm a singer. Yeah. Uh, this is what I do four or five days a week. So, you know, on my day off, this is also what I do. Yeah. And yeah. both me and Guy at this point had kind of made the leap out of, I had a, I had a part-time day job down in Brighton working for Catskills Records at the time, you know, paying the rent, paying the mortgage, you know. And that was becoming unmanageable pretty quickly. And Guy's situation was also becoming pretty unmanageable. I don't think we needed much persuasion to, you know, can the day job and just go all in, Um, you know. But uh, um, again, you know, it was naive, but you have to, you have to commit. You have to jump in with both feet. You can't do a a little halvesy-halvesies because otherwise you don't give it what it needs, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, you can only juggle it for so long. You did it too, Misty, as well. You know. I mean, I remember him phoning in sick to work with a bad back while being in an airport, hoping that in the background they weren't going to, you know, announce last call for the flight to Hong Kong. Oh God, yeah, it was terrible. I mean, it was exhausting that, and actually having to work sometimes on on the road, like getting up and doing doing a few hours on your laptop, like when you're, you know a bit hungover and you're just w- waiting to get the pick up to the next yeah, place yeah um so i mean but I, I managed to sustain it for a little bit longer but that's another that's for the, uh, absolutely for the and, and you know that, that that's the thing i mean you we, we you know me and guy were fully in which was great because it meant that timmy you didn't have to be at this point me and guy were gonna like you know um the train was running and we were we were on it and you we were, were just it, yeah. gonna and, and you know don't worry bro you do what you have to do and we're just gonna keep keep on it but after biscuits came out um the feeling i got in the immediate aftermath of that summer festival season and all the support gigs we did and and the occasional ropey headline show that we knocked out and stuff like that along the way that one in that one in kilburn really springs the luminaire i remember being a good one in london the luminaire yeah that that um, was very good so um that that, that that kind of thing and Paris and stuff you know the aftermath of all of this I think was like okay there definitely is going to be a second album this is this definitely counts as a tick on the report card it might not be an A plus um, but it's 
definitely a B minus. So I think we're gonna. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I definitely felt like okay, think now is actually a thing. And as opposed to when biscuits came out, where no one's expecting anything or even waiting for it. With the second one, it's like, okay, guys, we think we need to put this out, you know, next year, which means people are going to judge it, want to listen to it, you know, like it, love it, hate it, whatever. Um, which meant that we were actually a thing now. A thing, yeah. It was official. We were a thing. I remember maybe the first song I heard from the from what became the next record was, I think, So Many Roads, where because uh, we played that. I, I remember distinctly playing that at the end of the Biscuits um festival period with that festival we did in portugal where there was a huge power cut um, god i don't, I don't remember that. Playing that festival on, in portugal was a power cut where was that it was a power cut in it was a sort of art centery festival indoors oh god i do i do um, there was a power that. cut we had to eat yes. dinner by candlelight it was when finn had a sneezing fit i had a sneezing fit you're right it was very i do remember that now bloody <laughs> hell how do we would you remember the randomish yeah. randomish shit and we played so many roads and you, you'd played it to us it was literally like a kind of we'd heard it in the dressing room maybe or something and then you said, I'm going to play it live if you want to jump on. Oh, was that, was that my Back on. to the Future moment? Hey, guys, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's in G. Jump, <laughs> jo join in the it's chorus. Watch, watch, watch me for the changes. <laughs> watch me for the changes. Yes, exactly. That was right. That's nice. Um, I, I, I was writing stuff because I was feeling stuff. I know that sounds really obvious, but, you know, yeah, I was, I was uh, on the road so much that I was missing real life uh, now looking back i can see that I, in a way i was tentatively in a way saying goodbye to that to that life but uh, you know yeah yeah it was like so many roads you know yeah man i'm a road warrior do you know what i mean white lines on the highway yeah joni i know what you mean but um at the same time it was like i'm loving this this isn't tragic at all i'm i'm, I'm, I'm totally okay with this sure but, yeah um yeah i had material to go because biscuits was about very much about my life before biscuits, but distance and time was turning into my life now, yeah. so, and I yeah, wanted to yeah. write about it, you know. Sure. But yeah. yeah um, so when we finished those festival seasons, um, yeah, I mean, it was a thing. We were a band now, for real. Amazing. It was brilliant. It's exciting, isn't it? Exciting, exciting times. I yeah. So, so now, where are we now? Two thousand six. Summer so two thousand six. End of two thousand. Yeah, autumn two thousand six. So we're just about to embark on the. The Distance and Time era, which is chapter three. Oh, gosh, how exciting. Well, I mean, thanks for joining us on chapter two. I mean, what a pleasure that was. Memory lane. I know, absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know what? Brilliant. Sitting at the table, it all began for us.